Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection featuring conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, on this edition of the podcast, I will be sharing from my coverage of the top 10 topics of 2023 impacting the Christian community, including comments from Meeting House guests from throughout the previous year. On this edition, I will cover topics five through one. In the previous edition of the Intersection podcast, I covered topics 10 through six. Here is a review of topics 10 through six. At number 10, school and public libraries become battlegrounds over inappropriate content. Number nine, technological challenges await Christians in the future. Number eight, Christian involvement in politics labeled in a negative way using confusing terminology. Number seven, Christians face an unprecedented age of exclusion. And number six, abortion pill regulations challenged by pro-life doctors and others. An appeals court attempts to reinstate safeguards and the U.S. Supreme Court puts that decision on hold pending its hearing in the case. Moving on now with the number five topic of 2023. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of a postal worker requesting a religious accommodation from having to work on Sunday. In Groff v. DeJoy, the high court ruled in favor of a former employee of the U.S. Postal Service who had requested a religious accommodation so that he would be exempted from having to deliver packages on Sunday. That decision altered the way that religion will be treated in the workplace moving forward. Stephanie Taub, senior counsel for First Liberty, which represented Gerald Groff, commented on the nature of and the implications of the decision. So this is a major impact on um, on the rights of employees at work. Um, so previously, um, and so a lot of times employees like Gerald need religious accommodations. So this could be schedule changes in order to observe Sabbath or go to church or take prayer breaks or things like that. Um, so we see that a lot. We see it also in the context of religious dress or garb. So if you're wearing a yarmulke, for example, and your employer has a no hat policy, that <laughs> you might need a religious accommodation there. So you can see this in a, a variety of contexts. Mm-hmm. We've seen religious accommodations with vaccines and with um other sorts of employee-compelled speech where you might need a religious accommodation so you're not forced to violate your beliefs. So whenever there's a conflict between some aspect of your job and your religious beliefs, you might need a religious accommodation. And federal law protects you in many instances. So federal law says there's no discrimination on the basis of religion, and that And one aspect of that is that employers are required to grant you reasonable religious accommodations unless doing so would cause undue hardship. And so this, uh, this court opinion explained, okay, what is undue hardship? When do employers actually have to grant these religious accommodations? And they said employers have to grant it unless it would cause substantial cost to the business. So previously, under the previous standard that was in play for about 50 years, um, employers, all they had to do was point to some minor inconvenience, some minimal burden, to justify denying religious accommodations to people of faith. But now they have to show, okay, we have to grant it unless it actually would cause a substantial cost on the business. So for large employers like, um, like, and large government agencies like the post office, these are ones that have a lot of resources that easily can accommodate. And so these larger employers are gonna be more likely gonna be required under federal law 
to provide those religious accommodations. And we know the United States Postal Service is kind of a quasi-government agency, but this is not just for government employees or employers, I should say. It's not merely for federal government or public sector employees. This is across the board. Any company with 15 or more employees now, as a result of what the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled, has to abide by this new, new. I guess I could call it a new standard. It's actually kind of a return to an old standard, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and so, um, yes, it applies not just to government employers, but also to private workforces that have 15 or more employees. So that's um, a wide range of businesses. And then, um, yeah, it is a return to what Congress's the original meaning of what Congress said in, I mean, in 1964, they said no religious discrimination. And then in 1972, they clarified that you have to provide these religious accommodations in these contexts. And so this is returning to a more meaningful, more robust standard protecting employees of faith. Because without it, if you observe the Sabbath, you could be barred from a wide variety of jobs in the workforce if you just want to abide by your faith and do a good job at work um, and your employer can accommodate you but they just don't want to that's what that's exactly what congress had in mind when they passed this 1972 amendment and so and then this terrible case in 1977 gutted that and had a very pro-employer standard totally disregarded the intent and meaning of of what Congress wrote down. Um, So now we've returned back to this robust standard protecting religious employees. Stephanie Tabb of First Liberty with comments relative to the number five topic of 2023. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of a postal worker requesting a religious accommodation from having to work on Sunday. Well, the number four topic of 2023, also from the U.S. Supreme Court, The 303 creative decision undergirds free speech, the freedom to refuse to communicate messages that contradict a person's faith convictions. Lori Smith is the owner of a graphic design firm called 303 Creative, which is based in Colorado, where the state had put into place a regulation that would have forced her to communicate messages that violated her deeply held Christian beliefs about marriage. In other words, she essentially would be forced to engage in what has been described as speech, quote, compelled by the government regarding so-called same-sex marriage. So Lori Smith and her legal representation, Alliance Defending Freedom, successfully challenged the state law, a case which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of Lori Smith. Following the decision, Matt Sharp, senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, provided a recap and analysis. This was a very encouraging decision authored by Justice Gorsuch and was really focused on how when these state laws like Colorado's state public accommodations laws, when they collide with the Constitution, rather than what the lower court said that the state law prevails, just the opposite. The Constitution prevails. Our First Amendment rights prevail over any of these efforts to force people to speak messages, to support ideas and causes that they disagree with. And so throughout the opinion, we saw the court returning to this theme that no matter what your beliefs are, something that our Constitution has always stood for is that the government can't coerce or compel you to support something that violates your beliefs. And so they gave examples, just like we wouldn't force Lori to support 
marriage in a way that violates her beliefs, we wouldn't require an LGBT website designer to create a website opposing same-sex marriage. We wouldn't require a Muslim to design something for a Jewish or Christian organization if it violated their beliefs. We wouldn't require an atheist to support religion at all. And so time and time again, the court took this very simple principle that wherever your beliefs may be, no matter whether they're popular or widely held or whether they're unpopular, the government never has the authority to use its power to force you to speak a message or support a cause that you disagree with. And that was ultimately why the court reaffirmed that Lori's rights are protected and that Colorado cannot force her to design wedding websites that violate her beliefs about marriage. And you have those that would accuse Lori, and I believe that this was actually something you and I discussed as a result of the oral arguments, where Lori was not in a position where she was refusing to provide service to individuals. It is a matter not of the who, but of the what. In other words, it was about the message, of the content of the speech that was the central issue here, correct? That's exactly right. In fact, multiple times the court reemphasized how Lori works with everyone, saying, you know, she works with LGBT individuals and is happy to do graphic designs and websites for them as long as the message she's being asked to create don't conflict with her own values. Uh, And so if they were coming to her saying, can you help design a a business website for us, she'd be happy to do so. Anything that doesn't violate her beliefs and her uh, core values, she's happy to do and has done so. And that's why the court was very emphatic to say this is never about the who, as you described. It's always about the what. What is the message that you're being asked to create? And that's why the court also pushed back hard against the dissent, who was trying to paint this as, uh, oh, we're going to roll back civil rights laws and all of this. And the court actually said this is pure fiction, the idea that this is going to result in anyone being denied services. Because just like Lori serves everyone, our laws can still make sure that the doors of a business are open to everyone while still protecting against coerced speech in violation of our constitutional rights. And I'd like for you to elaborate just a bit more with respect to the content of the dissent and really how the majority opinion pushed back against that, if you would, please. Time and time again, we saw in the main dissent from Justice Sotomayor, this, I think, misreading of history, this misreading of what our court precedent has said. Um, And again, painting this picture that, oh, this is going to result in people being denied access to goods and services. Um, And it's just simply false. Um, There is a a tolerance that we as a society can and should show to people of different views. And that's where the court was really pushing back on, as they were saying, we have to make sure that there's always space for people with differing views to be part of the marketplace people with different views to be able to open up their shop and serve their community, but in a way that's consistent with their values. And what we've seen time and time again in ADS cases, is whether it's Lori or Jack Phillips or other of our clients, photographers, t-shirt designers, and others that we represent, that there is a place where people can open their doors and serve everyone, but still say, but please just don't force me to speak this specific message, this specific cause or idea that I disagree with. And so I think the the majority was very strong in calling out the dissents, misreading of the law, misreading of what this case was about, and again, calling it pure fiction, the idea that this law, this decision will in any way impact our civil rights law. Rather, what we are going to be impacting is the right of every American 
to never worry about the government knocking on their door and saying, you must speak this message. You must support this cause or idea or else. That's ultimately at the heart of this decision is the free speech for everyone is preserved and stronger as a result of the 303 decision. Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom from his comments reviewing the 303 creative decision, the number four topic of 2023. That decision undergirds free speech, the freedom to refuse to communicate messages that contradict a person's faith convictions. Well, the number three story of 2023 The Asbury outpouring results in students at that university surrendering to Christ and other colleges and universities become sites of revival events. In mid-February, a chapel service at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky did not end. It kept going for hours, then days. People came to Hughes Chapel on campus from across the nation to witness what God was doing. There were reports of students spontaneously speaking and confessing their sins. The atmosphere was palpable, soaked with the presence of God. I had the opportunity to talk with Joe Hancock of His Vessel Ministries in Montgomery, who went to Asbury to observe what was taking place there. She spoke with me after she returned. To me, the most profound thing when I walked in and when I left was that altar. See, I believe we see this all through the Bible, Bob. That revival, you can't jump over the altar Hmm. and have revival. It comes through repentance. It comes through brokenness to be revived, to turn back to God with your whole heart, everything about you. God's waiting for a surrender from many Christians. Surrender. That happened in my life. I was a Christian, but I wasn't surrendered. I gave God this part of my life, but this part over here now, God, don't mess with it. I've got it all figured out because I had wanted some of the world and some some of God. And God said, no, I want your life. And it wasn't until I surrendered and it was through repentance Mm. that God on the altar took me there. And rising up, then God, be, he, he just he just began to walk me into my purpose in life. And everybody's looking for a purpose, are they not? And this age group wants to know they have purpose. Hmm. This age group wants to know, what do I do for my career? How do I make a living? It's a critical point in life for this age group. And I, I you know, I, I believe this Asbury Revival, that has spread around our nation is saving our young adults 20 years of their life Mm. because so many people wander around about 20 years and then they figure out this isn't satisfying. (laughs) This isn't what I'm supposed to do. God tell me what I'm supposed to do and is saving them. Yeah. Those years of wandering in the wilderness, as we see the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, if they'd have just gone that 11 day journey, they yep. could have saved themselves 40 years. Mm. And the, so this age group is critical. So many, I, I saw so many reasons why it was focused on this age group. And, and it was, it was incredible to me, but being, but I, I want to join this. I don't want to do all the talking, but I do want to say this. The other thing that I saw, which is where, you know, my heart has been for quite some time is that as these young people, would respond to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit moving 
as the word was sang and the word was preached and the word was spoken out and testimonies were given, they would give testimonies. And they would give testimonies of what God did in their life. And they were very succinctly done, gave God all the glory. But many of their hurts went back to the home. And yes, maybe God, you know, maybe it was a Christian family and they went to church, but their home was broken and not necessarily from divorce, but broken because God was not the center of that home. Yet they would go to church. And so they started looking for relationships, true relationships in the wrong places. And they would give testimony how they just got off in things that they were seeking to satisfy what was lacking in their younger years. And I will tell you, that spoke volumes to me. Mm -hmm. It spoke volumes. Because again, you know, an, an emphasis that we've had at His Vessel Ministry for the last two years is praying that God would restore the family altar. And restore the altar at the church. Mm. And we've been asking God, God, would you restore the family altar where the spiritual leaders in the home will lead their home, lead their family, whatever the dynamics of the home is. There would be someone that would open the word of God each day, read the word of God, pray together with the family and, and other to, Bible study, whatever that looks like. Restore the family altar. And that is what I witnessed, that this age group is crying out for a home that is not broken from the will of God. Joe Hancock of His Vessel Ministries in Montgomery, relating observations about the Asbury outpouring, the number three topic in 2023. That event results in students at that university surrendering to Christ. Other colleges and universities become sites of revival events. Well, the number two topic of 2023 impacting the Christian community, the Hamas attack on Israel galvanizes Christians and Christian leaders who voice support for Israel on a biblical basis. On the morning of October 7, 2023, the nation of Israel came under attack from members of the Hamas terror group. Many Israelis lost their lives, some were taken hostage, and the brutalization extended to children. Across the world, Christian leaders announced their support for Israel. The attack not only had its political and ideological implications, but its timing certainly showed spiritual implications. When you consider that the Bible states that Israel will be attacked in the final days, this series of events provides a sobering connection to Bible prophecy. Alan Jackson, senior pastor of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, provided some analysis on the Meeting House program. Throughout history, there is a long record of anti-Semitism and that hatred and persecution of the Jewish people. And I think we often want to believe that we have moved past it, but it's very apparent that it persists until today. You know, there's the, and the, the awkward truth of that is the Christian church has been the greatest propagator of that anti-Semitism. I studied at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and while much of the Christian world in the West is not aware of our history, I assure you the Jewish people are. You know, Shakespeare would use Jewish characters uh, and present them with the worst character. 
we typically think of the Holocaust as being something propagated by the Nazis, and they certainly shared the lion's share of the responsibility. But the awkward reality is all of Europe cooperated with that and offered up their Jewish communities. And they were not unaware of what was happening. They were just unconcerned. And we, we see that flourishing in today with the behavior on some of the most elite universities in our nation, where students are protesting on behalf of Hamas, a, a terrorist organization recognized by our own State Department, which is not a conservative group. And it, it's an expression of a hatred for the Jewish people and combined with a real ignorance of history. You know, there has never been a country named Palestine. Palestine references a region of the Middle East. There was never a president of Palestine or a central government of Palestine. It was, and it was the Romans that identified the region of Palestine in the second century A.D. They wanted to eliminate the Jewish presence in, in Israel, so they renamed the city of Jerusalem. They expelled the Jews, and they renamed the region, and they borrowed the Philistines which had been a coastal people. Well, that's the second century. Muhammad wasn't born until the sixth century. So hundreds of years before Muhammad was even born, the Romans put the name of Palestine, trying to separate the land from its Jewish heritage. And we just have such a poor grasp of history and the events there that were easily manipulated by people with an agenda that tragically is often laced with a real hatred for the Jewish people. I appreciate your step into history here, and I'd like to go back even further to the book of Genesis, to what God had spoken to Abraham. And I'd like for you to draw that line between the covenant that God made with Abraham and his choice of Abraham's descendants to Israel today and explore that relationship for us, if you would. Well, that's a really good point. In the book of Genesis, God promised to Abram, that he would give a piece of territory to him and to his descendants forever. And that promise is picked up and repeated in the book of Exodus when, when Moses is talking to God about the people, and it, it becomes a part of the story. Uh, unfortunately, there is an idea that has flourished in amongst evangelicalism, and that's that God replaced the Jewish people. It's not a new idea. It's a problem in the New Testament church. It's a problem in the book of Romans. Paul wrote Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, really addressing that problem. And he asks the question in the pages of our scripture, did God reject the Jewish people? And he answers with the most emphatic language that's available in Greek. He said, God forbid, or by no means. And he repeats it multiple times. In fact, in Romans 9, the first two verses, he reminds us that without the Jewish people, we would have no covenant, we would have no law, we would have had no worship, we would have had no prophets, we would have had no Messiah, that in reality we owe a great debt to the Jewish people. Uh, Jesus echoed it in the Gospel of John when he said to the Samaritans, you worship what you don't know and we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Without the Jewish people, we don't even have salvation. So there is a fundamental debt that the Christian Gentile world owes to the Jewish people. I don't think it's an accident that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, Jesus is identified as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So when we have this picture of the culmination of the age and Jesus returning to the earth as the judge of all the earth, he is identified, he identifies himself with the Jewish people. He's the Lion of Judah. So the, the, the New Testament is very clear. God didn't reject the Jewish people. He didn't abrogate his covenant with them. 
that you and I have been grafted into that tree that God established all the way back in Genesis, as you so correctly pointed out. We are not a new story. We are standing on the basis of those covenants that God made all the way back in Genesis. And the more we're aware of that, I think the more committed we'll be to praying for the peace of Jerusalem and being an advocate for the Jewish people in the earth. I believe we have an assignment to do so. Alan Jackson from World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Comments regarding the number two topic of 2023, the Hamas attack on Israel, galvanizing Christians and Christian leaders who voice support for Israel on a biblical basis. Well, you are listening to the Intersection podcast, recapping the top 10 topics of 2023 impacting the Christian community. Before I share the number one topic, I want to go back over what we've heard not only last week, but also this week with respect to the top 10 topics of 2023. Number 10, school and public libraries become battlegrounds over inappropriate content. Number nine, technological challenges await Christians in the future. Number eight, Christian involvement in politics labeled in a negative way using confusing terminology. Number seven, Christians face an unprecedented age of exclusion. And number six, abortion pill regulations challenged by pro-life doctors and others. An appeals court attempts to reinstate safeguards, and the U.S. Supreme Court puts that decision on hold pending its hearing in the case. The number five topic of 2023 The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of a postal worker requesting a religious accommodation from having to work on Sunday. That is the Groff v. DeJoy decision. Number four, the 303 creative decision at the U.S. Supreme Court undergirds free speech, the freedom to refuse to communicate messages that contradict a person's faith convictions. Number three, the Asbury outpouring results in students at that university surrendering to Christ. Other colleges and universities become sites of revival events. Number two, the Hamas attack on Israel galvanizes Christians and Christian leaders who voice support for Israel on a biblical basis. Well, in the number one position, multiple issues surrounding gender advance, but receive pushback. There are a number of different elements that comprise the LGBT transgender agenda that have received attention in 2023. Areas include the participation of biological males in girls' sports, the secrecy that is being forced upon educators relative to keeping information about students' sexuality from parents, and the age-old mandates to use gender-related pronouns. The sexualization of small children, including indoctrination regarding LGBT activity, continues to be a concern. Fortunately, there has been pushback in these areas and in the area of surgeries and treatments which claim to help a minor change his or her gender. The performance of sex change operations on minor children has been described as child mutilation. Well, at this past year's National Religious Broadcasters Convention, Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries, and Brandon Showalter, senior investigative reporter for the Christian Post, addressed the issue. It's not a newsflash that young people, many of them, are uncomfortable in their bodies. That's mm. not news. What's news here is that 
there have been people with an ideology of queer theory, going back to critical theory. It's really an assault on truth. And, and they've sought to say, hey, that confusion that you're feeling, here's what it is. Here's the name for it. It's, it's about gender, not about your sex. And then there's a medical industry coming behind that saying, a certain number, percentage of the people who claim to be trans are going to want to do something about it medically. They're, they can be led to believe that by taking hormone therapy or even puberty blockers, if they're very young, they can solve this problem and earn the, med the, the, the medical industry billions of dollars. So mm. the confusion is not new. What is new is a, a culture that says there's no such thing as truth, an ideology that says there's no such thing as a, a dimorphic sexuality that's relevant to anything else, and a medical industry that says we see dollar signs. Jeff Myers and Brandon Showalter joining me today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio. It is the 2023 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. Well, this is very enlightening, Jeff, as you were sharing, with respect to the medical industry, again, being an intentional effort that has been undertaken here. And Brandon, you and I have had the conversation about the, the fact that there are those, especially medical professionals, that buy into this ideology and promote it. They don't even want you to know that it's taking place. And so now when you have hospitals such as Boston Children's and Vanderbilt and others that have been exposed, it, it really shows that, well, the, the culture at large has been deceived that this really is going on. It's not a matter of nothing to see here, keep driving. This is something that is taking place, and it's obviously very insidious. Oh, it's so insidious. And so many of the activists that have been slowly trying to inculcate the public with this dogma have operated by stealth. Very sneaky, you know, behind closed doors. Nothing to see here. Uh, but then as sunlight is shown on it, and as, you know, you mentioned Vanderbilt, where they had the video footage that emerged from Daily, the Daily Wire, where they actually had doctors on tape saying out loud that this, these, these bottom surgeries, as they are called euphemistically, where they disfigure the genitals of people, are, are, are a good moneymaker for the hospital. They actually mm. said it. And Boston Children's Hospital, you also mentioned, where the doctors were admitting on their own, on their own videos bearing their own watermark to doing these surgeries. and uh, But beyond that, the activists have been even worse, I think, in the media, which has given cover mm -hmm. to these medical institutions. Yep. They've papered over it with gender-affirming care, the euphemisms, or are there other things, transition care, you know, these other, these other things that make it all sound so sweet and nice, but it's the, manip the manipulation and the twisting of language that has shielded um, what's actually going on, which in my opinion, and Jeff, I know shares this view, are medical atrocities. This is, I believe, we believe, one of the worst medical scandals and child abuse scandals that the world has ever seen. And it's aided and abetted by a corporate press that has sort of been the protective phalanx around the medical institutions that are harming, irreversibly harming ch children and young people 
who will have to live with the regret of what they did to their bodies for the rest of their life. And we know children can't give consent, but the manipulation is just so mm. constant in, in this space. And the activists have indeed been very sneaky and stealthy uh, all these years. But I think finally now there has been an awakening. Year from Alabama, they passed a state a state law to restrict this for minors before most of this most recent rash of states in the last couple of months have done so. So the public is waking up, but I think it is hard to believe when people first confront it because it's so horrible. They can't believe that children are being disfigured right. and harmed and sterilized like this. But then when they realize, no, it's actually as bad as we're saying and probably worse, then it's like, okay, well, people react very strongly when they see doctors literally disfiguring a child's body. The co-authors of the book called Exposing the Gender Lie, How to Protect Children and Teens from the Transgender Industry's False Ideology, Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries and Brandon Showalter of the Christian Post. Here on the Intersection Podcast here on Faith Radio. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming menu at faithradio.org. Through that menu, you will find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also find a link to the Media Center through the Meeting House homepage. And through that homepage, you'll find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. You'll also find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel through which you can watch video of Meeting House guests. And there are links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on X or Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Just search for Faith Radio Podcast at Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, Pandora, Spotify, and a variety of podcast platforms. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.